Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. So good to be with you today as we continue our study of New Testament books. I know that usually at this time there is a recording that comes on and tells you a little bit about why we're doing the New Testament series at Somerdale Church Christ and also introduces you to the fact that this is a survey of one particular book. Today we're going to be covering the book of Philippians. Now, one of the reasons why uh, it's not doing the pre-recorded message is because for some reason we had some trouble with the audio during our services on Wednesday night. And so because of that, most of the beginning part of our study is cut off. So I'm going to fill in that gap by uh, giving you the information that I shared with the class on Wednesday. So today we're talking about the church at Philippi. We're talking about the letter to the Philippians. Let me start with some geography. So if you're looking at a map in the back of your Bible, or if you're looking at uh, online, maybe at some pictures. You're going to see the city of Philippi is located on the eastern border of Macedonia. That's the northeastern part of modern Greece. So the western part of the city had this view of the Pangaeus Mountains, and that's where the original settlers came in. They mined for gold, and that's why they stayed. Uh, the city itself is actually a, on a steep hill that borders this marshy lake about 10 miles south of the Aegean Sea, uh, the port city of Neapolis. And this is also a port city. So Philippi was just humming with traffic and travelers and people that were interested in trade. And so that plays into the story and into the letter itself. It's also the port where Paul and his companions set forth on their evangelistic mission to Europe in Acts 17, or pardon me, it's Acts 16. And this city, one of the reasons why they traveled through here is because of the commerce. It's also well known as being a military route that they would have taken through this region. And mainly that's because there were so many resources available to the soldiers as they made their, their route one end to the other. And it's along the eastern road of the Roman Empire, uh, Ignatian Road, I believe is how they say it. And the, the city which would have been even old in the days of Paul, uh, originally comes from the name Crenades, which means well or spring. And it was changed by Philip of Macedonia. Now, that's the father of Alexander the Great. And we're talking about three and a half centuries BC. Uh, the, the city has gone by a different name for so long, and all of a sudden he comes in and he changes it to Philippi because he's Philip of Macedonia. He wants to call it after himself. And so Philippi becomes a Roman property in 168 BC and in 42 BC, it was the location of a very important battle. If you're familiar with early Roman history, it's near this exact city where uh, Julius Caesar's murderers, Cassius and Brutus were defeated by Mark Antony and Octavian after fleeing uh, from Rome after they had assassinated him. Um, of course, Octavian goes on to be the Caesar Augustus at the time of the birth of Jesus, but a lot of the veterans who had campaigned and soldiers who had traveled ended up coming back to Philippi to stay. And most of the major cities where churches are established in the New Testament had that. So I consider it to be like a little military community, a little retirement community. And they uh, they would have had a lot of perks and benefits 
uh, on the within the commerce there of that particular region, and most of them were really re- well respected. Um, the people there formed a government based on Italian law. They were not subject to the governors of Rome, but because there were so many soldiers there present, they felt like there would never be an issue. Uh, and if so, the militia there would, would rise up against whatever tyranny or, or whatever persecution might be arising at, at a, any particular time. So Paul's letter kind of hints on some of these things in Philippians 3 and verse 20, for instance. And uh, earlier, Luke talks about it in uh, Acts sixteen twelve that these people had different uh, in- individuals that governed or ran their, their city other than Roman rule. So how did the church get started there? The origins of the church are actually started in around Acts, Acts 16, which I mentioned a moment ago. The conversions of Lydia and her household are recorded here. Uh, the conversion of the Philippian jailer in his house, maybe even the slave girl after her healing. But the church begins there with the work of Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and continues to build uh, to this crescendo of where we find Paul writing to them in this book is he's, he's really lifting up, building up these people. And I again remind you in Acts 16, Luke is using personal pronouns. So we know he was there, even though he's not mentioning himself by name. He's mainly talking about Paul and Silas in the prison, for instance. But Luke was with him during the travels. And this is one of those Hellenistic cities that Luke probably was familiar with. If not in person being there, he would have known by reputation. And Luke also records that this is where they began this work based on the Macedonian call Paul had received there at the beginning of the chapter. And so Paul gets this vision about this man pleading for help. Now, I I believe it is my opinion. I'll state that very clearly. It's my opinion that um, that man calling for help may have been Dr. Luke. And the reason why I say that is Paul had already experienced a vision in Acts 9 of being able to be approached by Ananias. Uh, in fact, he was told, go in the city, you'll be told you what we must do. And then when he tells Ananias, Jesus comes to Ananias and says, hey, there's a guy named Paul, straight called Straight, in the house of Judas. You need to go reach him. He's ready to obey the gospel. And he has received visions of you. So Paul had already seen a vision of Ananias before Ananias got there, which is interesting in and of itself because he couldn't see. He was blind, but he had an image in his mind of what Ananias would look like. And so it's not that uncommon uh, to see some of the miracles that people have experienced happening two or three or fourfold. This is one of the gifts that uh, Paul would receive after he is um, a full-fledged member of the apostles, I guess you could say. So it, it, it is my opinion that the Macedonian call comes from a man. That's why when they start in Acts 16, immediately Luke's already with them. It's like he went straight to Luke and picked him up. Now, also, Cornelius has a similar vision of Peter coming to preach to him. And, and so this isn't this isn't that far-fetched, but that's that's my opinion. My opinion is it's very likely that he received this vision of Luke needing help, having the vision to convert people in the Gentile communities uh, to go into Asia Minor, and so this Macedonia call starts there. It's also interesting that the first converts that he makes, if you're if you're not including Luke, would be the Philippian jailer's family, and first of all, Lydia. Lydia is a, a woman. Uh, and, and those that were in the prayer meeting she was having by the river, these are individuals that would have been a part of this early church. I just find that interesting that Paul's first converts, most of them are women, yet he receives a call from a man. So I, you know, that's where I, that's where I am, so that you know. 
but anyway, the, the group that goes in and does this evangelism has a lot of success with the prayer group on the outside of the city with Lydia. The church ends up meeting in her house. And uh, Acts tells us that it's after that Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke get on a ship. They sail to Troas, Samothrace, then on to Neapolis, which is the port city I mentioned a minute ago. And from that point, they would have had about a 10-mile walk into Philippi. And so they arrive in the city, they stay for a few days, they, they come into this prayer group. It's probably Sabbath day when they did this. This is Acts 16, 12, and 13. And chapter uh, 13 actually uh, tells us that it was Paul's custom to usually go to the synagogue first. So that's why he doesn't stray from the pattern in Acts 13, Acts 17. And we, we really don't know um, if, he, if he found a synagogue first and then went to this woman, or if this is where the synagogue had kind of met because the women only uh, or the only converts to Judaism may have been women in this community. But one scholar I was reading noted that uh, there's primarily not a, a synagogue in Philippi. Instead, the Jews in this city were just restricted from group assembly. And so they would meet on their own, probably because there was so much Hellenization in this community that the there was no rabbi that would stay long enough to help get a uh, synagogue started. And they did, one time it would be good in the future to talk about how uh, this, how synagogues were established and the leadership team, and you had to have at least three elders and so forth. We, we could get into that on another occasion, but suffice it to say, for whatever reason, it, if there is a synagogue here, and Paul may have visited there first, but we don't see the synagogue in Philippi, and some say there might not have been one. So this woman's prayer meeting, Lydia's prayer meeting, was his best shot at reaching either Jews or people that were at least um, friendly to uh, conversion and friendly to conversations about Christianity. Uh, but one of the things, too, I found interesting in study was that the church— for for instance, the, the Jews, the church had a little better evangelistic fervor here because the Jews were not really well received. And I don't know that you can actually pinpoint it for every reason, but mostly uh, the people in this region thought of Yahweh as a foreign god. Uh, some of the Roman cities had already restricted worship. If you had a synagogue, it had to be outside the city gates or a meeting place. And there's a very interesting statement in Acts 16, 20, and 21 that, that seems to be in, influencing us to, to see that. And the mission teams are accused of being Jews or at least followers of a branch of Judaism. So they were advocating some illegal practice. That's what stirs up the locals and the slave girl part of the story. And on a side note, you probably need to know that at least 10 men are needed to form a synagogue. There were three, usually if you had a leadership team, there had to be at least three. There needed to be a plurality of elders, but you had to have at least 10 men to start. And so they probably didn't have that. We really don't know. But there are no Jewish men mentioned in the city in Acts or anywhere else prior to Paul's uh, visit here in, in Acts 16. The work of the church, though, is relatively unsuccessful. I mean, we, we would say Paul, he didn't waste his time. He never, it's never a waste of time when you're preaching the gospel, especially when you have a handful of converts, but they seem to have little success. And he's expecting from this Macedonian call, this wave of Christianity across Asia Minor. And it's just not, it's not going to happen in Philippi. Uh, there are just basically those two significant stories about Lydia from Thyatira. So she's she, there's a church in Thyatira, interestingly enough, but 
she was a seller of purple goods, which means she has some wealth. She's selling to wealthy investors and people that were uh, very affluent. And she's a worshiper of God. Uh, could be that she was a Jew. Could be she liked Cornelius, just kind of searching for something. But uh, it also tells us she's the head of her own house. So you get the idea that maybe her husband has passed away. And it's, she's probably a widow. She could be unmarried. She could be divorced. But she's probably a widow just caring for her family. And she's the first official convert of the church uh, in Philippi. And then you have uh, also right after that the Philippian jailer story. And we know very little about him. Uh, more than likely, according to history, there would have been a small prison near his home or in the back of his home, and he would serve over the warden. So if something happened to a prisoner, positive, negative, whatever, his name was always attached to it. So if the prisoners, for instance, would have escaped, the Romans would have come, and it was a penalty of death. Uh, so he he's very scared. That's why he was going to take his own life. Uh, the family also obeys the gospel with him, so it means that they were uh, servant-minded and, and very submissive to the head of the house, and uh, very much unlike Lydia's family, where she's trying to running things. Here you have the flipping jailer on the other side that is, uh, he's the leader of his house. And this is the first, again, official converts. We read about the imprisonment there in Acts 16, but I don't have time to get into all that, Um the church was founded and Paul leaves, he goes to Thessalonica, and we have these wee passages that cease here in Acts 16. So scholars think that maybe Luke could have stayed behind to kind of help the work while the rest of them went on to Thessalonica and established a church there. It doesn't seem that uh, there would be a congregation that had little issues with the Jews after this meeting. So so Dr. Luke would have had some some a little bit of headache, but not as much. Because Paul is able to kind of, in a way, smooth that out with uh, with Lydia and with these families. And so when they come back and come through the city, they're very, uh, I, I guess I'll say, it seems like they're very successful. At least they're growing. And it may have been predominantly made up of the Gentiles and Jewish proselytes because uh, Paul feels a close connection to the brethren there. He writes a beautiful letter here in Philippians, but... Uh, we don't really see a lot of the Jewish influence. It's, again, people, more of a, a Gentile congregation. So when you look at the letter itself, basically I divide it in four thoughts, and I think this comes from Warren Wearsby. There's a book I read once many years ago. Preachers do this from time to time. We write down a bunch of notes, and we can't remember where we got the notes from. And I've heard people say, well, you can use my sermon uh, if the guy doesn't that I got it from doesn't mind, you know, because... But anyways, I wrote down these four thoughts, that chapter one was the single mind, chapter two is the submissive mind, chapter three was the spiritual mind, and chapter four was the secure mind. And the letter's considered to be one of the most warm and loving and personal letters of Paul. It's about joy. The church has a spirit of love and generosity. Uh, it would have been a very, very positive thing for other churches in this this area to have heard about the great work happening in Philippi. And there are several great points made. I mean, he talks about how the brethren were part of his regular mission support in verse 5, the first chapter. Uh, he uses the phrase, live as Christ to die as gain, which if you heard me talk much, you know that's a play on words from Socrates' uh, last few words before he dies. Uh, where he says to live his life, to die his gain. And then in chapter 2, he has this beautiful hymn. Um, first, It's interesting, First and Second Timothy both, and Ephesians all have hymns in them, little, little poems. 
And he commends two preachers, Timothy, who was a regular visitor, and Epaphroditus, who seems to be uh, a minister of that congregation, or at least was a regular visitor of that congregation traveling with Paul. Chapter 3 deals with doctrine. It deals with heavenly goals. Uh, and then the last chapter is going to focus on joy, meditation, and positive thinking. Um, I'm going to pause here for just a moment, and um, we will have a, a real quick advertisement, and then we'll come back and we'll pick up where the video picks up from last Wednesday night. I hope you enjoy it. Paul does praise the preachers. He praises in chapter 2 Epaphroditus. He praises Timothy, and we need to praise our ministers. And we need to let them know that they're loved, and we appreciate them, and we're behind them, and we believe what they're saying. But again, just be careful. Uh, in chapter 2 also, he says that we are all the light bringers. This is where he introduces the concept. In, in few places he does this, but he actually dives into uh, Matthew 5.16, something from the Sermon on the Mount, about being a person who shines light. Uh, and he, ta he talks about shining our light as an example. And then if, if you'll, if, just real quickly, let me just mention... Uh, 12 through 17, 18, because this is great. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you're always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, for it is God who works in you both to do will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing. I think that ought to be on the top of the doorframe before you leave your room. All of our teenagers need that above the door frame, you know. It, you, I, wouldn't it be great if we just had that mute button, you know, but they start to talk. Well, and we're all like that too, all of us are. But he says, do things without complaining and, and become blameless and harmless children without fault in the crooked and perverse generation. And then he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And he says, I'm being poured out as a drink offering, which he'll talk about in Timothy as well. But he, he gives this idea, you are a light bringer. You are a love shower. You are, you are the representative. You are the ambassador of Jesus wherever you are. And so do that with, in all humility. And one of the first verses I memorized from Philippians, obviously 4.13, but also Philippians 2.5. And I have that highlighted in my Bible. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The NIV says, seek the mind of Christ. And so uh, that's where that phrase, that thought comes, what would Jesus do as I live my life? Uh, how would Jesus react to this situation? And we will be, we'll find it interesting, too, though, that in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, most of the things that we encounter, Jesus encountered. His reaction should be our reaction. And so we, we have to learn it. It's a learned behavior. Uh, then chapter 3, he says, uh, Follow my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And this is where he starts the joy section. He's going to talk about heaven. He's going to talk about pressing on to the goal. He's going to talk about um, moving on to chapter 4, rejoicing the Lord always. But he is, he is so excited about what God is doing. And he says everything he's ever accomplished, all the things that he gains, he says these are counted lost for Christ. All the things that I've done. And he gives an outline of all the things that he had gone through in chapter 3, first part of chapter 3, and he says, let me give you a whole list of uh, things that I did. I was watching a video today, um, or maybe it was yesterday, of this guy as a youth minister, and he was talking about getting rid of your idols, and uh, what he decided to do was to teach his teenagers in the youth group to get rid of anything that
make an idol. And so he burned his diploma. He had a master's degree. And he burned it in the garbage can. He said, this is an idol. And, uh, you know, and that made quite an impact on the kids. It had been in a nice framed thing on his wall, and he just burned it. That doesn't take away his education. It just takes away the piece of paper. And what happened was uh, it fell over, it burned the rug, and then <laughs> so forth. It caused a big issue. And they said, well, this is all idols. Even the building's an idol. Um, but he was trying to teach the kids that there are certain things that we put up as um, the most important and so Paul says, it's not my education, it's not where I came from, it's not that I'm a circumcised Jew, it's not that I was a Pharisee, I count all that as rubbish. And that means, uh, in our language, let's just say the septic tank. Everything that I have ever done is equivalent to the septic tank. On a rubbish dunghill, he says, that's what I have done. Because Christ, in comparison to me, is so much greater. And that's why he has this joy that just radiates. Uh, he talks about pressing on to the goal, verse 12. You know, not that I've already attained it, I've already been perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. So he says, I'm a runner in a race, and I see the finish line, and I see the medal or the trophy or the crown, and I am going to, I'm going to finish strong. And the great thing about our Christian race is we've already won. We could moonwalk there, you know? We could walk, we could run, we could jog, we could baby step. Heaven is ours. The eternal life is our possession. But wouldn't it be great is while we're taking this last final lap that we took hands with other people and so let's get there together. And that's what Paul's trying to do is, is you have to have a frame of mind in order to have the action that comes later. And this is something we're talking about Sunday is that it's not just our words Kindness is not about what we say. Kindness is about what we do. Kindness is about bringing people into our circle. And so it's about reaching out. And so Paul is writing this letter to encourage. He's not demeaning people. He's not being hateful to people. Uh, he is saying what needs to be said in a loving way and talking about his own walk. And then he talks about maturity in verse 15. And then our citizenship in heaven, which is ultimately the goal, is to get to uh, eternal life. What would it be like to be an apprentice of Paul's? He had help in writing some of these letters, not that they were giving insight and wisdom, but that they penned them. How would you feel if you're listening to Paul in the dictation of this letter, or you're penning the letter? How would you feel when you hear it from his mouth? Remember, he's sitting in a prison cell. You know, today, we, we are, I know I am guilty sometimes of thinking I'm being persecuted because of my faith, because of my, uh, a statement I make or a shirt I wear or the church where I worship, things like that. In fact, if you're in any public forum, you probably feel pressure. But it was nothing like this. Nothing like this. Because they, they put some nasty quote about Jesus on a coffee mug. That's not, that's not the persecution that they face in the New Testament church. The fact that, that uh, certain organizations that publish our news are anti-Christian in their slant, that's, that's somewhat of a persecution, but that's nothing like what they faced here. I didn't have anybody waiting on me out here when I pulled up to the building today. I don't know what will be the case Sunday, but I know we were able to come in here and freely worship 
we're able to, because of freedom of speech, now I know that there's some, we got to be careful, some of that stuff's fading quick, but we're able to preach and teach and to live in, in freedom uh, that we didn't pay for, we didn't, we didn't fight for it, but we are going to have to fight to keep it. We have these freedoms, but Paul's living in a day where if they could have any reason whatsoever to kill you, and Paul went with letters to Damascus in Acts 9 to do that very thing, to drag people to prison, to accuse them of blasphemy. Now, they could not execute the death penalty. And I've heard people say, well, you know, early Christians, they probably weren't killed because of their faith. They were probably killed because of uh, cultural things. How'd that work with Jesus? He didn't do a single thing wrong, and they still put him on a cross. So if you don't think that continued after Jesus' death, you're taking the wrong look at, the, uh, at history. Jesus said to his disciples, if they're going to put me on a cross, what do you think they're going to do to you? The punishments were much worse. James, Jesus' half-brother, was taken to the top of the temple, probably the same point, the pinnacle, it says, of the temple, where Jesus was taken by Satan in Matthew chapter 4. You remember that? And he takes, Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms you see. James, Jesus' half-brother, went to that same point. But they threw him off that pinnacle all the way to the ground. And he didn't die. Then they killed him at the foot of the temple. The torture that the apostles faced, the, the, the persecution of the early church is greater than we could even imagine. The, the stuff that we go through, it hurts, it's frustrating, we get angry, but they couldn't even assemble. They had to go, you know what it would be like to have to worship in a cave? What about a cave full of dead people? They had to bury their dead in secret to have Christian funerals. And those catacombs became the houses of worship. They sang next to dead bones. They sat next to rotting carcasses and rats and all kinds of filth. And they had to meet in the middle of the night. That's persecution. And Paul is saying, I hope that you're doing this not just for my benefit. And I hope that you're doing it for the right reasons. And they must have, because anybody who could go through that, I mean, we... I had, I had a guy one time left the church, didn't come back because he didn't like the way we prepared communion. He said, the bread's got salt in it. You can't have salt. You can't have salt on the bread. It's got to be unsalted. And he said, I'm never coming back. Or a song that we sang. Well, you sang one verse you shouldn't have sang, not coming back. That's not persecution. That's being unhappy. In a way, that's kind of being petted. We, we, we complain about things that are minor things. And so Paul is saying, you got to have a great joy despite the persecution you face, which means death, uh, to live a good, faithful life. And he says how to do that in chapter 4. He says, being of the same uh, mind and judgment, he tells Philippi, or tells Corinthians chapter uh, 1 and verse 10. Listen to what he says in chapter 4 and verse 8. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. The joy he speaks of in verse 4, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, is changing your mindset to realize that the whole world isn't against you. It's just the devil, right? And the people that are around me aren't necessarily my enemies because sometimes our enemies can become brothers. Christ is 
our Savior. He's died for us. He's empowering us. We're getting strength to get through whatever we face in our daily world. But it's only really the devil that is against us. And that's the way we have to look at life. I'm in a, a spiritual battle against the devil. But guess what? I don't have to fight. I put on my armor, but the battle's already won. I'm just standing out in front waiting. I do have some weapons of opposition if I need it. And we hold forth with the sword of truth. But ultimately, Jesus has, has already fought the battle. And, and he's saying here, you've got to change the way you think. I, I want to close with this thought. He says, uh, th and this is, a, this is a section to memorize, beginning of verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in that now at your last care for me, it's flourished again, that you surely did care. You just lacked opportunity. Now I speak in, uh, I speak in regard, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. On my worst day, on my best day, in sickness, when I have great health, when the bank account's full, when it's empty, when I have everything I need, when I don't. And I'm, I'm on a diet right now. I'm hungry, okay? I'm hungry. We, we, we get hunger. We get thirst. He says, but I've learned that wherever I am, it's okay. Paul writes this from a prison cell. He's not writing it from a padded pew. He's not writing it from an air-conditioned house. I always tease and say, if I were God, I would let Mr. Carrier in first, because he invented air conditioning. I, Paul didn't have an air-conditioned home. He didn't have a, a reclining bed. He didn't have a, a car with GPS in it. He didn't have clothes to wear like we have. He's in prison with a dim light and a handful of parchment that was not provided to him by the Roman government. He has to write, it's cold, I need a coat. I want to write, bring me my parchment. Could you bring me some pens on your next visit? These are his letters. Could you please just provide me something to write with? And to occupy his time, instead of sitting around feeling sorry for himself, he writes letters to churches and says, I hope you're staying faithful. I am so proud of you. I pray for you every day. I'm thinking about you as I'm in here right now. And in that dim light of that prison cell, with the time that he has and with his eyesight and, and with what ink and what parchment he has, he is writing notes to churches that after 2,000 years are still in your hand. That's pretty awesome. And, and he, he understood true persecution. And he says, you know what? I, I'm content with this. I'm content with where I am. So I think if Paul could be content in a prison cell, I could be content with going without a meal for a few hours. I could be content with $5, $5 a gallon gasoline. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of things in our world. They're tough. It's ugly. It's terrible. Lawn guy sends us a message today. We've got to go up on our rates because gas has gone up. We are all hurting. We are all feeling the pinch. Can't get infamil for the baby, you know? This is the life that we're living in. It's a culture in which we live in. And Paul says, I think we just ought to learn to be content and say, I guess this is just the way it is. It's probably because of things that happened before we got here that we need to change and we need to evaluate. But ultimately, if I can't change it in this moment, I guess I can be content in this moment. You know, we, we have what we need to get by. There's a reason why we don't have more. I'm a big believer. There's, God has a reason why I'm not a multimillionaire. 
You know why? I probably wouldn't use that money the way that I say I would. We are, we, we, why don't we have the things that we have? That's why I encourage people, there's a thousand reasons why you shouldn't gamble, but there's one reason why you don't have it now, because you would misappropriate it. Until you learn to use what you have, you say, well, I, I want to be a millionaire. You don't even give 10% to the church. Why would you think God is going to give you millions of dollars when you don't even put anything in the plate on Sunday? It's just a simple way. Why would he give me good health? If I'm not going to go talk to people about Jesus and come to church, why, why, would, why would God give me two or three vehicles when I abuse the one that I have, whenever I have relationships? Why doesn't God give me a, a wife or a husband? Well, your track record isn't so good. Work on yourself first. Work on your life. Learn contentment and learn to appreciate what you have. Then God will provide those added blessings. Uh, there's a great statement by Jesus. He says, where much is given much is required and when god gives you something he expects you to use it for his glory and and one of the ways we show that is by our by our offering by our giving not just financial on the first day of the week but uh in the way we give our time thank you for tuning into today's broadcast be sure to hit that subscribe button to get updates on original content each week follow us on social media at facebook instagram twitter tumblr tiktok youtube and check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com also if you'd like to suggest a topic for an upcoming broadcast or if you'd like to email me a question or if you have a prayer request you can send that to rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com have a great day and may the lord bless you as you seek to live an authentic life in christ jesus To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.